0: Welcome to the Onscript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at onscriptpodcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash onscript. Hi everyone, this is part two of Chris Tilling's paper on Karl Barth and the Book of Romans. I hope you enjoy and please share your opinion about the show on your MySpace or Friendster account. In the previous episode, I presented the first part of my paper on Karl Barth's Romans commentary. I summarised what biblical scholars might do when reading Romans. You know, the sort of things we try to answer. Um, why Paul wrote Romans to this particular group of people in Rome. You know, We try to get to the bottom of why Paul thought he, w- he was achieving uh, something with this letter um we'd be careful to present and weigh up all of the most likely ways of reading Paul's Greek looking at the grammar of the of the Greek um uh letter and and that sort of thing we we'd think about how people in on a shame culture presumably similar to Paul's might hear Paul's language um oh, you know in all of these things we're attempting to clarify the historical Situation of Paul's letters, and, and and avoiding that great sin. I mean, this is the great sin for biblical scholarship: anachronism. You know, we wouldn't think it right to read the book of Revelation, would we? As as if the locusts that you read about there were really UN helicopters sent to destroy Brexit. Um, and in the same way, we wouldn't want to read Paul outside of his historical context, and that's what biblical scholarship is is trying to do. To to look at the historical situatedness of of Romans. But Barth seems to do the exact opposite. He seems to impose theological and philosophical structures on Paul's letter to the Romans in his commentary. Um, So, you know, at the end of the last episode, you might come away with the conclusion, yeah, Barth was a bit of a jobby. Well, so say a choir of biblical scholars anyway. Um so in this episode we're going to explore some reasons why Bart might not have been so nutty after all. In other words, this episode seeks to de jobify Bart. And I'm going to do that in three steps before um turning the tables and asking what Bart might teach biblical scholars. You know, enough thinking about what Bart supposedly got wrong. That was the first episode. In this second episode, we ponder what Barth might have gotten right in his Romans commentary. And there might be a few surprises for us all in what follows. And this is especially so when we see that Barth might teach biblical scholars how to read Paul's letters to the, Roman, uh, Paul's letters to the Romans after all. He might have a few things to teach us. Anyway, so without further ado to the second part of the lecture. Turning now then to part two of this paper, standing with and supplementing Bart's response to his New Testament critics. So what I make of these concerns, is Bart's commentary merely an interesting theological fossil, much as say that mad stuff about babies in Augustine's Confessions? Well, the short answer is no, so let me elaborate. No, no, although I won't, now give a full account or defence of Barth's exegetical practices. Some things do need to be said, and more than that, the New Testament Guild needs to learn a thing or two from Barth's commentary. As I shall argue, the conversation that should continue to take place between Barth-inspired theology and the New Testament Guild has enormous potential for all involved. In what follows, I will discuss matters under three overlapping headings, matters of style matters of exegesis, and then wider themes. This will lead me to showcase how Barth sets a challenge to New Testament scholarship before noting remaining critical concerns. So, to matters of style. One line of defence that has been marshaled against charges that Barth ignores the task of justifying his decisions on lexical and grammatical questions, establishment of pericopes and so on, is to say that Bart simply didn't quote show his homework, and um, Beverly Gavento mentions this um, in her lecture that I'll mention a bit later on. Some might turn to the first edition of Bart's Romans commentary and see a little more of these usual features, but even this is redacted in the second edition, left behind the scene to make room for the presentation of the quote word in the words, to echo Bart's preface to the second edition. Perhaps this means that Barth wasn't uninterested in these matters. It had already been published. And even in the second edition, Barth is keen to show his reasoning vis-à-vis text-critical issues. And some of his decisions may have been poor, but that doesn't disqualify the commentary as such. Barth simply had different goals, and thus an alternative style. Certainly, if I were to To submit a commentary riddled with us, we, you, and so on, I'd be laughed out of the Society of Biblical Literature and directed either to the AAR or to a publishing house that deals with devotional, not academic, literature. But the fact remains that Bart's language corresponds closely with Paul's the spirit bears witness with our spirit, our bodies will be redeemed, each of us must please our neighbour, we are debtors not to the flesh, we cry abba father, and so on. We stray beyond matters of mere style here, but to claim to set ourselves aloof from this kind of personal involvement is more than an innocent attempt to seek objectivity. Bart would indeed add that this kind of goal, this autonomous observer, is the definition of rebellion. Quote, there is no department of human life outside the realm of this crisis. Close quote. And indeed, quote, Christ is the occasion by which men are enabled to apprehend themselves as existentially free. Close quote. From the human side, quote, there is no objective observation of the truth, for its objectivity is that by which we are observed before ever we have observed anything at all. Close quote. So such attempts to stand with disinterest besides the subject matter, looking for cute parallels, illustrating textual dependence and so on, are, to quote Bart, peas puffed out of a pea shooter. It is the definition of the fool. They are acts of the flesh. It is sinful. So Bart's use of personal pronouns follows Paul's lead and resists the fantasy of disinterested objectivity. Besides which, and as Roland Bart sought to show in his essay The Discourse of History, the Rankian foundation upon which are built towers of biblical scholarship deceives itself by deploying the objective person shifter. This is something that Bart gets into, the Roland Barthes, not Karl Barthes. It merely pretends to have hidden its ideological foundation utilising this method. Um, this critique of objectivity is readily accepted by historiographers, so there is no need a priori to prefer the tradition of my own biblical scholarship. And if one cannot imagine a good commentary that was forthright with its partiality, I'd suggest a little bit more Gadamer for breakfast, for it is through our traditions that understanding can take place, not apart from them. Paul was partial, the gospel is personal, so I dare not criticise Bart for these matters of style. Instead, I worry about the tradition of biblical scattered studies in which I stand. And this is why Bart's sermonic tone need not be dismissed either. Yes, Bart's dialogue partners do mean that this is an odd commentary, by modern standards, but we must remember that Bart wrote these commentaries without a doctorate as a pastor in Suffinville. Apart from that, and for much of church history, from the fathers and mothers to the reformers, theology was written as sermon, as prayer. Bart stands in an older tradition than my own. Now, I don't want to spurn contemporary biblical commentary, obviously, but one cannot dismiss Bart's work as commentary based on these stylistic factors, nor does this imply that we can now all go on a subjectivity free for all The point, as Bart articulated was to see the word in the words. And one wonders which model better serves this end. So now to matters of exegesis. Beyond these issues are matters of exegesis, interpretive claims that seem highly problematic. And I outlined a few earlier. But let us linger on his account of Romans 9 to 11. Actually, my paper was originally going to be devoted to Bart's reading of Romans 9-11, but Beverly Gaventa, much to my chagrin, very much stole my thunder with her brilliant recent paper at the annual Carbark Conference, which you can find on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, Just put in Beverly Gaventa annual Carbark Conference and you will find it definitely worth your time. Indeed, Bart's term switching, let's just be honest, it looks suspicious. Israel is the church and sometimes Israel too, while the Gentiles are the unchurched, isn't this supersessionism? The pull within Judaism movement and others seek earnestly to resist such evils and maintain, uh, quote, the irrevocability of God's covenant with the Jewish people and a continuing role for Torah as a demarcator of the Jewish people and their identity. To cite, Brian Tucker's recent volume reading Romans after supersessionism so we're dealing in other words with the irrevocability of God's covenant and the continuing role of Torah as a demarcator for identity and identity is of course a hot topic and um, uh, I'm not going to wade into that too deeply but isn't Bar erasing Jewish identity with his move with Gaventa, we can see Bart's move as consistent with his entire project, especially, I'll point out, with the uh, second edition. Romans 1-7 to sets the scene. This is summarising an awful lot, but hopefully you'll get the gist. God is known through God. Not a phrase found in the commentary, I admit, but it's used often enough to summarise his work. God is known through God as the unknown God, revealed in his resurrection... Intuitable only in the cross of Christ, the place of the negation of all human possibilities. As such, and this is the point really, revelation remains out of the hands of human management. It follows then that there is no soteriologically significant distinction amongst humans, no symbolic capital based on identity, to use John Barclay's language. Bart readily admits that there may be distinctions within time as well as amongst humans, but they are not soteriologically significant, and in this sense they are, quote, trivial, close quote. There is no soteriological superiority imminent to humans as humans on the basis of all of this. Salvation, and it is salvation, not epistemology, contra Alastair McGrath, salvation is miracle alone. For God is God, which means, Allein durch den Glauben bin ich, was ich nicht bin. You can practice the German. Alone through faith. I am what I am not. He captures Paul's own relativizing of all human identities in light of Christ. And I use the word relativizing uh, there um, on the basis of Barth's language. Paul says, doesn't he? Galatians 3, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians 3, in the renewal, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. This is Bart's frame his reading of Romans 9-11, and thus makes sense of his attempt to undermine any soteriological confidence church folk, Israel, whoever, might claim in and of themselves. And I don't see in principle why this is incompatible with the irrevocability of God's covenant with the Jewish people, nor the continuing role of Torah for their identity, even if other problems may remain in Barth's reading. And his focus on Christ in this logic, on the death of Christ as the death of all, and the resurrection as life for all, Second you know, Corinthians 5, Romans 4, 5 and 11, offers his reading of vessels of wrath and mercy, deep coherence. Indeed, Bart's reading of the 7,000 is less opposed to the plain meaning of the text than he suspected, as the number is symbolic in Second Temple Judaism, perhaps speaking of apocalyptic wholeness. Um, have a look at Jimmy Dunn's commentary. Further, this section leads to the astonishing claim in Romans eleven thirty-two that God may have mercy on all, a verse Bart rightly saw as crucial. And see now the forthcoming work of Thomas Dixon, who wrote his PhD on this subject and at Princeton. But there is more for this soteriological leveling out of all humanity in light of the godness of god is i suggest a golden thread throughout barts commentary on chapters 8 to 16 he consistently attempts to break down divisive distinctions and emphasize human solidarity We see this throughout his account of positive and negative ethics, as well as in both the great negative and positive possibilities. It likewise grounds his meditation on the dissolution of Paulinism in his section, The Crisis of Human Freedom. Uh, That's an amazing section in the commentary, by the way. But in our own divided socio-political landscapes, I think these are tremendously helpful emphases. Certainly, Bart's rhetoric concerning the Torah in terms of self-righteousness and legalism is problematic, if we take Paul to be speaking about the Jewish pattern of religion or some such. But the interpretive results of Bart's rhetoric is perhaps less problematic if we see in Paul's language a different target. Either Gentile Christians are seeking to adopt Jewish law, as some say, or Jewish Christian counter-missionaries, as others maintain. Paul is not, therefore, speaking about Judaism as a religion, but rather a particular Christian take on Gentile salvation that has mishandled the Torah. Admittedly, this all needs to be worked out exegetically in terms of Romans nine to eleven. But either way, Barr and contemporary biblical scholarship have here overlapping interests. Barr exegetes the text with reference to. Uh, and I'm talking about Romans nine to eleven, Bart exegetes that text with reference to Israel elsewhere, um, and famously in the Church dogmatics. But these earlier efforts, I think, capture something of Paul's spirit. And Bart also applies it pastorally to his own situation. He is placing his hearers amongst Paul's addressees. In other words. And that's the crucial point, which raises wider issues, to which we now turn. So, wider themes. Bart's exegetical practice has been well discussed. Bart reads Romans with and under Paul as not being merely about Paul, hence we are Paul's addressees. He wants to explicate what is in the text for sure, but primarily in light of die Sache, the subject matter, to which the text points, and so on. My purpose in this section is simply to draw attention to two recent works which, in different ways, endorse Bart's project. The first is Darren Soresky's recent monograph, Reading the Bible Theologically, and the interview on OnScript... Um, It has already been published, and you can go and listen to it. Um, In which, Cereski seeks theologically to construe the reader of Scripture. Cereski contends that we need to arrive, quote, at a proper view of historical distance, close quote. One which notes, quote, the single economy of salvation in which all these interpreters are situated, close quote, whether they be the original auditors of one of Paul's letters, whether they be medieval Catholics or whether it be one of the listeners of Onscript. And this is so, quote, despite the differences that mark them with respect to imminent determinants of identity, close quote, in terms of time, place, language, social script, class, race, gender, and so on. All readers are, as Srisky argues, quote, united together within the one economy of salvation, close quote. All are subject to death and salvation in Christ. This is not to say that contemporary readers are precisely the same as the earlier ones, but that quote, they are like them in non-trivial ways, close quote. Really, it boils down to whether we're going to read Paul as if salvation is a reality or not. And second is Seth Herringer's recent contribution and the OnScript podcast is forthcoming, um, and uh, on his book Uniting History and Theology. In it, Herringer goes on the offensive against the historical critical method. It is, he argues, based upon a skewed reading of the German historicism of Ranke and Troj. It suggests that historians and biblical scholars do their work neutrally, then leave the results for theologians to do with what they will. Bunkum, says Herringer. The ditch between history and theology, which the historical critical method st- stresses, cannot be navigated by modifying the historical method. Nor can biblical work ignore history and hope for a safe haven on the shores of dogmatics, however that be construed. For Christian faith has to do with history. So you can see is trying to hold two things together here. History and theology. But what is needed then, in order to hold them together, is a Christian account of history. One which dovetails with developments in recent historiography. Herringer's first constructive proposal argues that a Christian historical method will involve, quote, a two-leveled history, close quote, which boils down to an appreciation of the order and connection of Scripture, which, one might suggest, endorses Barth's articulation of the theme of Romans in relation to his commentary as a whole. Um, Herringer's second proposal is to reject the notion of scholarly neutrality, which we've already discussed, his third point is to appreciate the interconnectedness of past, present and f- future, to which we're going to turn shortly. But first, a word about the nature of Bart's theological exegesis. For it should be noted that apart from a few mentions, creedal terms don't play a decisive role in Bart's commentary. I merely cherry-picked a few examples out earlier on when I was in my speech and character as a biblical scholar. I see no explicit mention of the Trinity in the second edition. Now, with Bruce McCormack, one can speak of the, quote, functionally Trinitarian nature of Barthes' second edition, but this is hardly due to theological imposition, for the simple reason that Paul was a Trinitarian. Now, I realise how that might sound, but if you don't believe me, have a read of my essay, Paul the Trinitarian, cunningly titled... Indeed, rather than imposing later theological propositions justified by a recourse to philosophical constructivism, a method which I see at work in Wesley Hill, bart attempts to allow the subject matter of the text to set the agenda, the word that is in the words, and let it be clear, Paul was likewise focused on die Sacha, namely Jesus Christ. So this is the question. Would the Paul... Who said he considers everything as dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus? Expect any less from us, his readers, his addressees. And the crucial issue, uh, as a, as an aside here, is who are the addressees? And Bart is saying we are the addressees. Biblical scholarship says nope, by definition. Well, this really brings us to the nub of the issue. What has the New Testament Guild to learn from Bart? Beyond simply defending Bart's approach in *Der Umbrift* from the concerns of New Testament scholarship, let's turn the tables. For Bart sets multiple challenges to New Testament scholarship. For starters, despite the provisional nature of his account of time and eternity, which developed between the editions and was then largely jettisoned, or at least. Um, morphed going forward bar is at least struggling with matters that are incipient in the text and to which new testament scholars are usually unacquainted taken in as they are often by some kind of facile now and not yet scheme paul's language is richer than that witness the way for example paul can speak of christ's past constituting the present so to gentile roman auditors paul says You have died to the law through the body of Christ. That is to say, Christ's past constitutes the present. Then again, Paul can state that the past of of Christ is not just the present, but also the future for Christ's followers. So, in Second Corinthians four fourteen, Paul writes, "The one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus." Christ's past is the future resurrection. It is not here raised like Jesus, but with him, constituting, to use Michael Wolter's language, an gemeinschaft of Christ and his followers. Yet Paul can also state that the future of Christ followers is inscribed in the past. You were raised with him, Colossians 2, and a few other places in Colossians and Ephesians two six. But even this does not exhaust the richness of the way time flexes around Christ. For Christ is eternally pre-existent for Paul, meaning that creation and what follows are the smaller stories, the subplots encompassed by Christ. Creation does not happen before Christ for Paul. And this, even though this Jesus was born of woman under law, Galatians 4.4. 4 so much for paul hence bart's language wrestles with what is really there with his language of eternity being the frontier of time Uh, or when he writes of time um, bearing within it that eternity by which it is dissolved on this paul and bart would agree christ is our contemporary yes we are the addressees in other words New Testament scholars, on the other hand, have a tendency cheerfully to speak of Christ in terms of a time when he was not. Witness the scholarly standard commentary on Romans revealingly claim in comment on Romans 1-2 that, quote, the prophets articulated the gospel of God in the period before Christ, close quote. A time when he was not. What is more, but strong Christological focus latches onto that which is most important for paul for the apostle quote living is christ and dying is gain philippians 1 21 and his deepest longing is that quote we will be with the lord forever first thessalonians 4:17. get this and you get paul miss this and much will be twisted out of joint which is why i prefer apocalyptic readings of paul but that's another story But more than this, Barth presses these insights through in ways that the New Testament guild still struggles to accommodate, and to their detriment. This focus on God in Christ keeps foundational the one foundation, namely Jesus Christ. It kept Barth alert to other claimants for this foundational role with unique insight. Not historicism, not psychologism, not pietism, nor even Paulinism, as he powerfully argued in commentary on Romans 15. None of these can bear the theological weight we might be tempted to put on them. But New Testament scholarship continues unabated and usually oblivious to the import of these issues. Versions of salvation history, for example, can construe a grand narrative in which Jesus is merely a chapter within a larger story. All witness conservative evangelical commentators argue that Romans 1.18-3.20 be understood as a necessary preparation for, rather than as part of, Paul's exposition of the gospel, and then insist that this focus on sin and guilt alone makes reception of the gospel understandable. So it's not part of the gospel, but it's necessary to make it understandable. These verses in Romans are taken to construct precisely the kind of metaphysics Bart so energetically sought to overturn. The problem with this is that New Testament scholars, in doing all of this, mobilise key theological mechanisms, problems and solutions, even the theological narrative, prior to and independent of Jesus Christ, thereby allowing foundations other than Jesus to be established in accounting for Paul's theology. Bart was alert to such damaging foundationalism. And much contemporary New Testament scholarship fails to grasp the significance of Paul's claim that, quote, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. More could be said, anyway, about Bart's psychological richness and depth, the sense for humour the way in which he bumps us up against universalism, and if we don't at least flirt with universalism, we aren't reading Paul's letters very closely, and of his astonishing account of the outsider which we arguably need to hear more now than ever in our bitter culture wars, but um, time is limited, and I need to bring this to a close by noting some outstanding issues. Now, you may have been hearing in the background that my kids are getting steadily more and more nuts and so i'm left thinking do i finish this now or not well let's just press on and finish because we're nearly done um because there are some remaining issues while bart focuses on the subject matter which we agree is pauline in principle his own articulation of this lacked grounding within paul as we noted earlier more needs to be done in the establishment of the Pauline account of the godness of God and its relational contours. And what to make of his claim that historical critical work is preliminary work to an understanding of Paul, to quote him. In what ways is it preliminary? Is it part of the same project, step one, as it were? In what ways does it provide prefatory aid? For it may be that Herringer is right and that historical criticism as practised in biblical studies, can no more sit beside Christian historical exegesis than one can serve two masters. And let us not forget Barth's selective exegesis, his lack of attention to the contingency of Romans, some less helpful term switching, his choppy use of intertexts, and the way in which he did occasionally use his commentary as an opportunity to springboard into free, or at least very creative, theological thinking, you know, thinking soberly in some sort more bold, there remain weaknesses, in other words, which leads me to my final thought. What is Bart's commentary? Our rather vague and unhelpful answer is that Bart's commentary on chapters 8 to 16 is a particular kind, and only a particular kind, of exegetical commentary. It is also only a particular kind of theological commentary. It is both of these without being contained by either. This should not surprise us, for it is pastoral yet theologically demanding, disturbing yet comforting all at the same time. Either way, Bart's work remains by far and away my favourite commentary on Paul's letter. And if you haven't read it yet, then let me encourage you Um, to invest in purchasing a copy and you will spend many happy hours learning from Bart this is Chris Tilling with OnScript finishing off a rather unusual podcast in which I read out my paper Encountering the Otherness of Bart let us know what you think um, and we'll see if we'll do things like this again in the future